Let us begin with prayer, please. Father in heaven, our wisdom is not sufficient for these things. We are not wise enough, understanding enough, to know how to live even in this world without the guidance that you have promised to give us. And so we ask that you will teach us, that you will send your spirit to inform our minds and our hearts about the greatness of your love and the best way we can respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. This session is entitled, Selling Worship or Selling Out Worship. And the title, Selling Worship, comes from a book which I read recently by one Pete Ward. The title of his book is Selling Worship. I find that to be quite an oxymoron, at least a conundrum. If worship is, as we described this morning, the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so, I don't really understand how an appropriate response can be sold. I have an even harder time figuring out how an appropriate response might be bought. A response is what happens inside. In order for selling worship to mean anything at all, worship must somehow be perceived as a commodity, something thingifiable, if I may invent one, which is going to cheapen our notion of what worship is right off the bat. But his subtitle tells us a little more. How what we sing has changed the church. Now that presents a problem for those who contend that music is morally neutral or morally irrelevant. In order to know whether the problem is a real problem, we have to know whether what, or what we sing has changed the church. If his phrase is exaggerated or inaccurate, there's no problem. We should get on to more important matters. And maybe the church and worship shouldn't be so synonymous that there's even a connection between his title and his subtitle, Selling Worship, How What We Sing Has Changed the Church. I have to assume, though, because he puts them together in that way, that he sees them as at least connected. And I believe, indeed, what we sing at the 11 o'clock hour and other hours when we get together does have an impact on what the church becomes. Has what people are singing, has what people have been singing changed the nature, the experience of the church at worship? I want to be careful not to wrest things out of their context, but I wish to share with you four sentences from the introduction of his book. The first one, the culture of selling has begun to influence the culture and practice of the church. I should point out, in all fairness, that he is writing for the United Kingdom, where apparently the contemporary worship music scene has been even more pronounced than in this country. But his perception is that the culture of selling has begun to influence the culture and practice of the church. Beyond that, he says, the shifting patterns in metaphor and imagery common in worship songs reveal a gradual theological development The observation that the theology of the church is being changed through the songs that we sing is very significant. If we add to this the realization that the changing patterns in theology are related to the way that popular music markets and sells itself, 
then some important and perhaps less than positive observations can begin to be made. One approach to how our singing influences the church may come from the writings of Lionel Aidy, who suggests that the content and purpose of hymns individually may be described as objective, subjective, or reflexive. Objective hymns are doctrinal, or they narrate some particular biblical experience. They state some facet of truth about God in a straightforward way. They point us to some scriptural evidence about our Maker and His worthiness. Immortal, invisible, God-only wise. That's an objective hymn. That is about God. Subjective hymns introduce a strong mixture of the worshiper's personal experience. They talk about me. They talk about how my life has been changed or how I have responded in commitment to what God has done. In general, those two categories are pretty much the same thing as the difference between hymns and gospel songs, a distinction which up in Minneapolis I had time to go into, I haven't had a chance to hear. Gospel songs have to do with telling others about what the gospel did for me. Hymns have to do with explaining to God how much I appreciate who he is, ascribing the worthiness of his characteristics. The reflexive hymn, on the other hand, is a hymn about my singing or a hymn about my own worship itself rather than even my experience. Those of us who have a great controversy understanding have a basis for responding to these. Objective hymns, a strong theological content. God is supreme. He is worthy of honor and praise. His actions as they relate to the human family should be kept alive and fresh in our experience as a touchstone by which to evaluate our own experience. The gospel song is a subjective genre, and it focuses on how an individual has responded. What has God's grace done for me? How have I been changed by it? How does it make me feel? To whatever extent feelings matter, and they do. What does it lead me to believe? What do my beliefs lead me to do? If there are warm fuzzies in our worship, they're going to be found in the gospel song. Think, for instance, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. That's about me. That's about me and my God, but from my point of view. And that's a nice, warm, fuzzies kind of song, and we sing it that way. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we should recognize what it is. It is not a hymn to God. There's also a place here for an expression of my commitment. I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoever my lot may be. That's a gospel song. It's a good one. We should sing it. We should make the commitment. But that is not a hymn of praise. Even here, there can be trouble afoot, though, as Pete Ward puts it in his book, with contemporary songs. The desire to sing songs to God about me, rather than my singing about God, has tended toward a lack of interest in the traditional theological content of hymns or of the Psalms. In some cases, the songs have very little specifically gospel content. Instead, they speak about what is happening between the worshiper and God at that moment. We forget to our own great peril that revealed truth is given so that we will have a validating touchstone by which to try the spirits. And that's a biblical admonition, as you know. Try the spirits, whether they be of God. Not every spirit in the world is loyal to Yahweh. I think you know that. 
And when, as we've been instructed, the most driving passion that Lucifer has is to be worshipped, it behooves us to be very sure that our experience with a spirit in worship is in harmony with what the Word of God says. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, we sing. That's nice. I seem to recall Jesus saying that when the Spirit of truth came, he would reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that the world would not be able to receive him. Throughout John 14 and 15, the Spirit is constantly presented as the Spirit of truth, a comforter, yes, a counselor also. His comfort, witnessing to the forgiveness given to us, is certainly sweet. But his presence implies a lot more than just having a sweet expression on each face. The reflexive song is a song about worship itself. And Ward candidly expresses concern toward the ten, uh, about the trend toward using more reflexive lyrics and fewer theological lyrics. He reviews three recent examples of reflexive songs, all of which he personally likes, all of which he has used. None of which, incidentally, I happen to know, but that's beside the point. His comment regarding the first one, quote, If the chorus did not use the word Jesus, it would be hard to identify any specifically Christian content in the song. In fact, the theological content relies on the worshiper filling in the gaps. Furthermore, he says, charismatic worship has tended to focus on the work of the Spirit or of the ascended Lord. In a reflexive hymn, we are generally singing about a disembodied you. In focusing on singing songs to God, there is a danger that we leave open the question, to which God are we singing? As part of the movement which has been clearly told that in the last days deceiving spirits will move mightily on the earth, including among the visibly religious in the world, it is more than worth our while to be sure that the spirit, and I'm writing that with a small s, in whose company we sing is the spirit, and that has a capital S, whose allegiance we should who should have our allegiance. Regarding the third of those reflexive songs that bothers him, having quoted a line from the song claiming, the heart of worship is all about you, Jesus, he says very few of the songs are really all about Jesus. In fact, many of the songs are not really about Jesus at all. Rather, they are all about the worshiper and the experience in worship. In other words, the songs lay themselves open to the criticism that they have replaced the content of the Christian, experience, the Christian gospel with human experience. I'll read that again so I get it straight. The songs lay themselves open to the criticism that they have replaced the content of the Christian gospel with human experience. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they give the impression that we are worshiping worship. If those observations are true, then what we sing does have the power to change the church. What we choose to fill our minds and our mouths with is both indicative of what we believe and it is also formative about what we will believe. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of this time in what is going to be less obviously an ordered direction. I hope there's been a fairly logical direction to the two previous hours. This time I'm going to give up. I'm not even going to try because there are several things that I know ought to be addressed, and they don't make a nice straight line. So if you are willing, I would like you to think in terms of the traditional free association bubble, an idea here, and this is related to it, 
and this is related to it, and this is related to it, without perhaps being able to trace a really nice straight line around the outside. Number one, Marva Dawn again. Quote, it is important that congregations do all they can to counteract the present idea that we must do all we can to make worship easy for those who come so that they'll come back again. People, that is a very strong temptation. We must do all we can to counteract the idea that we must make worship easy so that those who come will come back again. The best way to ensure they will come back is to give them such a rich vision of God with such warm hospitality that they realize God is exactly who they need. The most obviously holy time of my day is the time I spend in my personal devotions. Right? Seeking to learn from Scripture what God wants to teach me, pledging myself to Him. Maybe that's not just the most obviously holy time of my day. Maybe that really is the most holy time of my day. Similarly, when a ragtag company of believers, ransomed people, whether there's seven of them or 7,000 of them, I don't care, When a ragtag company of believers, which is what we all are, with all of their seeming incompatibilities of temperament, experience, unevenness of character, when that group of believers responds to the invitation of the great ruler of the universe and comes to offer corporate homage and worship to him, is that not the most obviously holy time for that company? Indeed, probably, actually, the holiest time for that company of believers, for that church, Does any outsider have any right to control what happens during that most holy time for the group of people? I hope the answer is obvious. No outsider has a right to tell us what goes on during that holiest time of our experience as church. That belongs to God and to those of us inside. No passage in the scripture says worship the God in order to attract the unbeliever. It's not there. Rather, in countless texts, we are commanded, invited, urged, wooed to worship God because God is worthy of our praise. Or as John Blanchard puts it, in all the Old Testament references, there is not one instance of music being used to help communicate Judaism to the heathen. There is no record of the Israelites organizing a Jewish religious folk festival to try to convert the Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites, or Amalekites. It's not there. Even more significantly, there is no reference in the New Testament to the early church using music to reach non-Christians with the gospel. All the references are to the church at worship. There are no references to the use of music in evangelism. Now, that's an intriguing notion. But I would like you to consider the implications of what is now frequently referred to as the seeker-driven service. To whatever extent the church body or its leaders flavor or modify their most intense and most effective worship practices in order to try to appeal to the non-believer, to exactly that extent they have yielded the control of their holiest moment to somebody who knows the least about it. That's scary. Consider a very crude illustration. It is a fact which I acknowledge that I know very, very little about tennis. 
particularly about how its scores run. It seems to me a rather complicated procedure. Assuming that you are a tennis expert, I might ask you to explain the game to me. How does this thing happen? And you, wanting to teach as effectively as you can, offer to buy us both tickets to a tournament so you can tell me, play-by-play as things go on, what's happening. I'm delighted. And on the appointed day, you pick me up and you drive us across town to a soccer stadium. For the duration of the match, you give me really good descriptions of what's going on, and I learn a whole lot about soccer. When I complain that that wasn't really what I asked for, you shrug and say, well, tennis is really pretty demanding. I didn't think you were ready for it yet. And besides, in soccer, there's so many more people playing, and the action is is a lot more exciting. I thought you'd enjoy it more. Am I happy now? When I construct my worship experience as a fine work of entertainment, in order that my neighbor will not find anything offensive there and maybe will come back then, I have shown him soccer, not tennis. I have shown him an elegant, appealing spectacle. I have not shown him worship. Indeed, what I have done, actually, is to turn my worship toward the unbeliever. For, as Paul Bassett says, one of the subtlest ways of flattering man is to communicate the gospel in a way he wants rather than the way he needs. Marvadon observes that when she asks what people want at church, she gets a totally different answer than if she asks the same people what is appropriate for church. Neil Postman says it so well. I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Is it possible that one reason I'm so anxious not to offend my neighbor by anything in my church is that I have forgotten how to be offended myself as I bring my meager, pitiful discipleship before the scrutiny of Almighty God, even when I know that God is also my compassionate, tender, loving Father. There's a great paragraph by the early 20th century preacher, and you're going to snicker when I say his name, but I have to tell you anyway, his name is Arthur Gossip. Okay. He writes, This insensibility of ours is a bad symptom. For one thing, it implies that we have no spiritual ambition, else we should not be satisfied with such poor lives, that we cannot have thought out the fact of Jesus Christ and how immeasurably he has raised the standard. Will you hang your wretched daubs beside the works of Titian and Michelangelo and not be shamed by the enormous contrast? Will you stand back and say with a satisfied smirk, that's pretty good, you know? And can you live face to face with Jesus Christ? and be content with what you are? Why would any non-believer really want to know what happens in my church on Sabbath morning anyway? Other than mere curiosity, or maybe having to fulfill a school assignment, the most likely reason is set forth again by gossip in a marvelous passage. Here and there in the New Testament, we blunder in on Christ and find him on his knees. And once at least, ere we can escape, cannot but overhear him pleading our names. Neither pray I for these alone, that is, for Peter and John and the rest, but for those who will believe through them. That is, for you and me. Hush! The Lord Christ is praying for you. And what is it he asks for us? That we be given such a spirit of unity and brotherliness and Christ-likeness, that people coming upon us will look at us and look again 
and then from us to Jesus Christ seeking the explanation of us there. I would like to expand on that premise because I think it is crucial in a world where Adventist young people feel increasingly comfortable watching whatever movies the rest of the people are watching, wearing whatever fashions other young people are wearing, playing whatever video games other young people are eroding their time and their adrenaline on. Marva Dawn once more. Worship is not of interest to our unchurched neighbors, not so much because of its style or substance, but because they don't see that those who regularly participate in it are any different from anybody else. Ellen White said it a long time before Marvel Dawn did. Christ's followers are to seek to improve the moral tone of the world under the influence of the impartation of the Spirit of God. They are not to come down to the world's level, thinking that by doing this they will uplift it. In words, in dress, in spirit, in everything, there is to be a marked distinction between Christians and worldlings. This distinction has a convincing influence upon worldlings. Notice what it is that has a convincing influence upon worldlings. It is not our likeness to them. It is not our ability to do what they do. It is our principled difference from them. We have for a very long time tried to convince ourselves that by clothing our distinctiveness in the garb of the culture around us, we would somehow have a greater and more favorable influence in the world. Have we not? We have tried to do what the world is doing so that we know they will know that we care about them and it, we're like them. And so why should they bother with what else matters to us? In doing so, we have thrown away the very thing God's servant tells us would have the most telling impact in our associations with those around us. This is not exactly rocket science. I uh, have no excuse this time. I had an excuse last time. I'd said in my last lecture, if I'd had a little more time, a little more money, I would have bought a dozen tennis balls. You know, that nice day-glow yellow sort of color. I was going to put half of them in a plastic bag, and the other half dozen in another plastic bag, along with one nice bright blue racquetball ball. And I show you this bag, and I say, which ball do you notice? And I show you this bag, and I say, which ball do you notice? It's the one that's different. The one that's different catches your attention. If they're all the same, so what? That's the first bubble. Bubble number two. The notion of a celebration service strikes me as a very strange notion for any group of people who have honestly accepted the fact that we are the church of Laodicea. I went back to Revelation 2 and 3, and you know what? I don't find much in the Laodicean message to celebrate. I really don't. The Ephesus message highlights their works, their toil, and their patient endurance, as well as the fact that they departed from their first love. Laodicea's works, on the other hand, are so tepid, God can't stand them. Those of Smyrna are identified by tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, it says. Slander and suffering also, but Laodicea boasts of her riches and prosperity, not knowing that she is wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. To Pergamum is given the recognition of holding fast God's name. To Thyatira, an acknowledgment of love and faith and service and patient endurance. Sardis is dead and needs to be awakened. Laodicea is not dead. Laodicea is just blah. 
Philadelphia is twice described as having kept God's word of patient endurance. Laodicea's lifestyle doesn't cherish patient anything. Laodicea lives in a world of instant gratification, even if her riches and prosperity have been bought with plastic and will be paid for at 17.99% interest. Fortunately, the rebukes to Laodicea are also supreme evidences of God's love. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. But the call is not for celebration. The call is for zealous repentance. The time will come soon enough for eating together and fellowshipping together, even reigning on the throne with Jesus Christ himself. But that promise is only given to him who conquers. Does it really make sense to contrive an upbeat, jiving service, complete with all the trappings of our contemporary culture, at the risk of missing the knock at the door? When he knocks at the door, it is not a given that anyone will hear his voice and open the door. He says, if. Somehow it feels a little too close to the Master's question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Bubble number three. This will take a little longer, but it's kind of fun. I think it's fun. I hope you think it's fun. Probably quite a lot of you, I have gotten it from many, many places over the years, have a significant question about the matter of sacred and secular as it relates to church music in the past. Martin Luther is supposed to have said, why should the devil have all the good tunes? How many of you have heard that somewhere? Okay, I thought so. Thank you, I feel better now. It is also frequently asserted that he used bar tunes and adapted them for church use by putting in sacred words and thus sanctified them for his parishioner's use. I think we need to talk about it. And I would recommend, if you want a fuller treatment of the subject, that you get the book by Paul Jones that's in your bibliography there, Singing and Making Worship, an excellent, excellent volume. But here's a bit of a summary. There are three aspects, at least, to this question that I think we need to look at. Number one is the matter of bar tunes and Luther. Now, I have to give you a quick lesson in musical form to make this one clear. You didn't know you were here for a form lesson, but we can make it work, I think. Because in your handout, you will find a familiar Martin Luther tune. I'm guessing you've all sung A Mighty Fortress sometime or another in your life. And you have it there on your page. It should be number 506. should be the front side of the third sheet, if I'm not mistaken. And just once, I think we ought to sing first stanza through, at least, to get it in our minds how it goes. Sing with me, please. Almighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient The notes that you sing in the first two measures. Do you ever sing those again? Do they come back? Do they? Where? Second line. line. So the first two measures we might call an A motive, and it comes back again down here, right? How about the music in the second 
pair of measures are at the end of the line. Does that happen again? It does. Where does that happen? Here. Here also? Here also. Again? All the way back down here. Interesting. Curious. All right. So I have an A and a B, and I have the same A and the same B. What happens then after that? I've got five more units. For still our ancient foe, is that like anything else? No, it's not like anything else. We're going to call that C. Uh, does seek to work as well? Is that like anything else? Not really. Okay. His craft and power are great. Doesn't match anything else. And armed with cruel hate. Totally unique. Not like anything else. And then we get this one back again that happened down there. Does that make sense? You see how the diagram shows how the music, the tune works? Good. We can summarize this. We can summarize this by making this an A and this a big A and all the rest of this together down here, which is different, is a B. Does that make sense to you? Okay? Good. That particular musical structure, that particular form, goes back a very long ways in music history. It goes back all the way to ancient Greece. It occurs in plain song. It occurs frequently in the secular songs of the Middle Ages, particularly the Meister singers. And it has a name. You know what the name of that form is? Bar form. Did Luther use bar tunes? He did. That kind. And because of this little tweaking of the English vocabulary, we have all of a sudden come up with a major problem that we don't know what to do with. The fact of the matter is, as far as is presently known, only once did Luther take a secular tune and set sacred words to it. And after a couple of years, he was so embarrassed by the associations that he wrote another tune to go with that set of words. And in the next publication of his hymnal, the substitution was made because his uh, publisher agreed with him. So he got rid of the one that was there. When we read the Martin Luther used bar tunes, he was using bar form tunes. As a matter of fact, all the chorales, everything Luther wrote practically for the church, is in that form. We have perhaps a dozen or so in our hymnal that match that form. And the bar form is a perfectly legitimate thing by itself, but it has nothing to do with the tavern or the pub. So, we can let Luther off the hook that time around. Isn't that nice? Yes, he used bar form tunes. He did not use bar tunes. All right, one down. How about that the devil has all the good quotes tune? You know what? Nobody has yet found it anywhere in Martin Luther's writings. And there are those who have looked. It's not there. The fact is that Albert Schweitzer, the great humanitarian who was a medical doctor and a very fine musical scholar, attributed it to Luther. He apparently thought that's where it was. That's not where it is. That same saying has been blamed on Isaac Watts. It's been blamed on both John and Charles Wesley. It was blamed on Dwight Moody. The fact is somebody did say that once. His name was Roland Hill. And he lived from 1744 to 1833. And he was so concerned about the need for good tunes in the church, that he himself compiled and published five collections of psalms and hymns, three of which were specifically for children. So he had a burden to do something about the devil having all the good tunes, and Wesley and Watts and Luther are all off that hook. There is, however, an interesting angle to that. 
Because even if Martin Luther had said it, he didn't say what you thought he said. He would not have said what you thought he had said. Let's see, how am I doing? That's getting a little complicated. Because Luther frequently referred to the papal church as the devil. So what he really would have been saying is, why should the Roman Catholic Church, with all that marvelous plain song, have all the good stuff? Oh, that changes its nature a bit, doesn't it? Not only did he replace the one tune he had borrowed, because he was afraid parishioners would be distracted with its secular associations, he also took many of his chorales and arranged them for nice four-voice settings. You see, we've lost out on some of the social singing that used to be common. It was not at all uncommon after a meal for somebody to come around and pass out part books, and the people would have time to sit down and sing together. Now, uh, I invite you to think your way through that. That's the same as giving, giving the tenors just the tenor part, same like you get just the saxophone part in band and giving the altos just the flute part. You think you could sing your part off just the part that's given to you? We don't have that same kind of musical security, most of us, when it comes to reading particularly when you have rests that don't line up with somebody else's rest. Yeah, it gets a little complicated after a while. But he said specifically, I want to attract the youth who should and must be trained in music and other fine arts. I wanted to attract them away from love songs and carnal pieces and give them something wholesome to learn. So he scored his chorales, which normally would have been sung simply as a unison tune in church, for four-part settings. Interesting. Next question. Just because we can let Luther off the hook, does that mean we can let everybody off the hook? The answer is no. Charles and John Wesley, from time to time, took dance hall ditties and put sacred words to them to use in their outdoor evangelistic meetings. As far as I know, they did not plan to use them in their worship services. But I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm going to belabor another point instead, which I think is more important. Did your mother really never, ever say to you, Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't make it right. (laughs) We would love to be able to excuse our wanting to use secular music in church because so-and-so did it. And if Martin Luther didn't, then we'll blame the Wesleys. Does that make it right? Was that necessarily the best thing the Wesleys could have done? Did it strengthen the church in the way the church needed strengthening? I don't claim to give you an absolute yes or an absolute no, but I have to ask you to ask the question. That does not justify what we would like to do. Bubble number four. As I suggested in the last hour, the Christian church has a responsibility to evaluate and, when necessary, pass judgment on the culture of the world in which it exists. And I would like to reinforce that by a paragraph from Bernard Idding's Bell, which I find rather interesting. Written in 1945... I don't think things have changed that much since. As for what the church thinks and says, what influence does that have on the handling of American politics, the conduct of American education, the regulation of marriage and divorce, sex and drink, on how industrial disputes are settled, on how we carry on business? As a plain matter of fact, religion in this country is generally regarded as a tolerated pastime for such people as happen to like to indulge in occasional godly exercises, a strictly private matter in an increasingly close-knit and socially acting society. In other words, as something that does not count. I would like to see the church recognize that it has been pushed into the realm of the non-essentials, 
I would like to persuade it to fight like fury for the right and the duty to bring every act of America and Americans before the bar of God's judgment. Christian leaders are making valiant claim to such a right and duty, but the great mass of church members are content to regard the church as a conglomerate of private culture clubs. Nice for christenings, weddings, funerals. Most church members readily agree with the unchurched majority that it is not the proper business of the church to criticize America or Americans. That's also a little scary. Bubble number five. Two quick sentences from Great Controversy. Page 509. Conformity to worldly customs converts the church to the world. It never converts the world to Christ. Familiarity with sin will inevitably cause it to appear less repulsive. I'm going to read it again. Conformity to worldly customs converts the church to the world. It never converts the world to Christ. In the Missionary Book of the Year, which was published somewhere around 1961, Elder George Vandeman, the book is Planet in Rebellion, related a conversation which took place while he was accompanying a group of Adventist young people on a study tour in the valleys and mountains of northern Italy. From this point on, I'm quoting from his book. Then this Waldensian elder, a layman in the church, said with conviction, This is our great heritage of the past but we really do not have any future. We have given up the teachings in which we once believed. We no longer believe that Jesus will soon come in the clouds of heaven. This belief we have abandoned. From all that I can observe, from what I have heard about your people, you must now carry on. He pointed to a nearby mountain. And by the way, when the orchestra was over there a couple of years ago, we had a chance to be at Torre Pelice and to see one of these Waldensian encampments, one of the Waldensian churches, one of the schools from which these people went out, having memorized the book of John before they went, and having copied at a stone table portions of scripture which they could hide in their garments' hems. If you look up here on the mountainside, you will see one of our Waldensian chapels. You will notice on this chapel, as on all our chapels, these words, And the light shineth in darkness. No more appropriate passage, Vanneman says, could have been inscribed on these chapels where light shone out through the dark centuries of the past. But he added, During the past years in these valleys so filled with sacred history, we have no longer the vision we once had. We have tried vainly to hold our young people in the church. Beside these chapels where it is written, The light shineth in darkness, we have built dance halls thinking that in this way we might be able to hold our young people. But now they seem to have no more interest in or love for the church. Their interest now is down in the bright lights of the big cities. No longer do they want to remain here. What a miracle it is that your church still has young people who are interested in coming up here to our valley and in studying the history we love so much. But that is all in the past now. The sad thing is that we are not moving forward with courage for the future. You must carry on. And I ask you, young people, is that the testimony you want read over what's left of your church 45 years from now? Or 10 years from now? Or 100 years from now? 
Does it really make sense to go the Walden Seas one better and not build dance halls next to our churches? We just bring the dance band into the house of worship. When the sounds of the praise and worship team imitate as closely as they dare or as closely as they can afford to the sounds of the disco, we are not going to convert the world to the church. We will convert the church to the world. I would like to conclude by introducing you to a most remarkable man. His name was Martin Rinkert. And I could have cobbled together an account of his experience, but I think it's better if I just read to you from Julian's Dictionary of Hymnology. He himself is quoting from an earlier source. And this is the story of the last part of the life of Martin Rinkert, and I have a reason for this. Quote, The greater part of Rinkert's professional life was passed amid the horrors of the Thirty Years' War. Any historians that recognize the term, the Thirty Years' War? 1618 to 1648, a religious war, basically, which totally wiped out much of Europe, particularly Germany. Eilenburg, being a walled town, became a refuge for fugitives from all around, and being so overcrowded, not unnaturally suffered from pestilence and famine. During the great pestilence of 1637, the superintendent went away for a change of air and could not be persuaded to return. On August 7, Rinkert had to officiate at the funerals of two of the town clergy and two who had had to leave their livings in the country. Livings, apparently, at that time was a a kind of a parish arrangement. It had to do with religious leadership. Rinkert, thus, for some time, was the only clergyman in the place and often read the funeral service over 40 to 50 persons a day. In all, over about 4,480. At last, the refugees had to be buried in trenches without service. And during the whole epidemic, some 8,000 persons died, including Rinkert's first wife, who died on May 8, 1637. The next year, he had an epidemic of marriages to encounter and himself fell a victim on June 24. Immediately thereafter came a most severe famine, during which Rinkert's resources were strained to the uttermost to help his people. Twice also he saved Eilenberg from the Swedes, once at the beginning of 1637 and again in 1639. Unfortunately, the services he rendered to the place seemed to have made those in authority the more ungrateful. And by the time the long-looked-for peace came on October 24, 1648, he was a worn-out and prematurely aged man. Now, my good people, we have only one hymn in the Adventist hymnal by this man. It seems to have been written around the year 1636, when the war had dragged on for some 18 years already. Obviously, he could not foresee the horrors of the next 12 years. But what he had suffered already was terrible enough. What kind of a hymn do you think a man would write who has been through what he had been through? You have it in your handout. And I would like us to sing it. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done. In whom, what? His world rejoices. Eighteen years into a bitter battle. Who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love. And still is ours today. Now 
I do not mean to insult any contemporary artist of any stripe. But I have to tell you that if I have the option of choosing between singing such a hymn by such a man or singing a popular style song by a 21st century Nashville contemporary singer who smiles contentedly all the way to the bank with the royalties from the last platinum single, I know where I'm going to look for meat in due season. Hymns are not boring. Hymns are not yucky. Hymns are the voice of the church at worship. Hymns deserve to be our study, our meat, our focus, and our language. I'm not telling anybody here what to listen to at home, or at work, or at school, six days a week. I think it's a related subject, but it's a different subject. But in our corporate worship, let us mutually learn and be edified by the strong theological meat of real hymns, whether they come from the 2nd century, the 12th century, or the 21st century. Let us revitalize our worship by singing the true worth of the God who made us, who has saved us, who loves us with an intensity far beyond the feel-good chummy love, which cheapens our awareness of what grace really means. May the faith of our fathers, sung with boldness and confidence, bolster us in our daily experience, our weekly experience, and ground us in his matchless and incomprehensible greatness. Father in heaven, we are yours. You have made us for your own pleasure. You have enriched us with gifts from our mother's arms. We do not know how much we owe 
to you. We live in a pleasant place. We live where our religion does not cost us heavily. That will change. And we pray that while we have the opportunity, we will store our minds and our souls with the reassurances and the challenges and the understandings which serious worship can bring to us. Thank you for accepting our worship, for allowing our worship, and for enabling our worship. In Jesus' name.